Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Hello and welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Van Leeuwen, and here's what is making news this week. Max Verstappen is the 2023 Australian Grand Prix winner, prevailing in a bizarre race that featured three red flags and still somehow ended behind the safety car. Lewis Hamilton was second and Fernando Alonso third, while Oscar Piastri scored the first world championship points of his career in eighth. Brody Kostecki left Albert Park with both the Larry Perkins Trophy and the Supercar Series lead thanks to a breakthrough weekend that included his first two race wins in the category. The other two Albert Park race wins went to Shane Van Gisbergen and Brock Feeney. What really made headlines over the weekend, though, was the Ford V8 motors with two cars suffering what looked to be identical engine fires. That prompted technical changes on Saturday night and a safety car start to Sunday's race. We'll have much more on that later in the show. Parity reared its head again at Albert Park as well, with Camaro drivers locking out all four podiums across the weekend on the fast-flowing Melbourne circuit. That has led to renewed calls from Ford drivers to look into engine performance. As part of the parity process, centre of gravity testing is taking place at Tickford Racing today. Supercars has clarified its stance on gagging drivers, with CEO Shane Howard reiterating that no official orders were passed on to drivers to not criticise the Gen 3 cars. The series also backed its technical boss, Adrian Burgess, amid claims from Triple Eight at the Newcastle disqualification hearing that he wasn't necessarily being truthful. Joining me this week to discuss all that and more is a teammate that single-handedly got us kicked out of the Tickford garage on Saturday night, Stefan Bartholomew. Stefan, you troublemaker, how are you this week? Hello, Andrew. I get the feeling you're a teammate who really doesn't like being moved out of a garage. Really? What gave you that impression? I don't know. It was an extraordinary time there in the Supercars paddock on Saturday evening, wasn't it? It was. It was tense. There was a lot of tension. It was... uh, yeah, reminiscent of a few scenes we've seen in the uh, in the sort of build up to Gen Three and the uh, yeah, there's still obviously a bit of tension going on about these cars. It's been it's been an interesting few months. Anyway, let's crack into what was a very very large weekend at Albert Park. I do selfishly hope each year that there aren't any waves in the supercars paddock over the AGP weekend because I am on double duties with F1, but I really got unlucky this year because it was about as newsy as it gets in V8 land. Stefan, I think we have to start by talking V8s, by which I mean Ford V8 motors and their newfound tendency to spontaneously erupt into flames. Uh, Now, to set the scene, Nick Perkett's WAU car was the first to go up in flames on Friday evening. The team was quick to reach a conclusion that it was an electrical fault and pinned its suspicions on a failed tyre pressure monitor sensor. Supercars refuted that claim and apparently suggested it was an installation issue at WAU. It also warned teams to check their oil tank levels and empty their catch cans just in case. That didn't seem to work because on Saturday, the exact same thing happened to James Courtney's car, much to the 
I think delight is probably the wrong word, but perhaps satisfaction in a weird way to uh, a few people at WAU. The theories flew in thick and fast from there as to why this was happening. There was talk that the Ford drivers may not race on Sunday, somewhat understandably given, uh, you know, they were pretty nasty fires. The paddock was a very tense place on Saturday evening as uh, as we just covered off and as we did find out, Stefan, while minding our own business waiting to talk to Tim Edwards. Um, to be clear, Tim, Tim is very helpful uh, and giving with the media and I don't think he was quite aware of what was going on. But anyway, the technical working group met late into the night and decided on a heap of technical changes for Sunday, such as removing the TPMS, disconnecting the breather hose from the crankcase to the catch can. The catch can venting position was also changed as it was going straight into the wheel well uh, and Sunday's race was started behind the safety car to limit vapour buildup and temperatures. Now the real work begins in determining what the actual cause is. Um, as I said, there's been plenty of theories such as the TPMS. There was also talk that perhaps the daylight driving light wire that's connected in the Camaros but not in the Mustangs was the issue or that there's heat and spark from the brakes. Obviously, this vapour from the catch can is definitely part well, – seems to be part of the problem. But, like, whatever it ends up being, Stefan, like, what an extraordinary situation it was and what an extraordinary evening Saturday was. Yeah, it was extraordinary and there is, as you say, a fair bit more work to do on this in terms of testing and analysis before they go to Perth in a couple of weeks. But um, yeah, there was a lot of debate after the Perkout fire, um, even before James Courtney's even bigger one, like a lot of friction between WAU and supercars and back and forth on, on what was the cause. And at one point, I believe WAU were then the ones really talking about not racing on Sunday. But yeah. really, when you look at it, I thought it was pretty impressive the way the entire paddock did pull together through that technical working group and implemented that list of risk mitigation factors for uh, for Sunday to get the show back on the road. And the changes they made with the oil system may well have actually solved the problem, but they don't know the ignition point yet. So there's there's some analysis to do there, whether it's as simple as the heat from the headers or, or what's going on there. And clearly one of the biggest questions was why did it happen at Albert Park, but not in Newcastle yeah. or any of the testing. And, and that's why they peeled back all the little changes that they'd made since Newcastle, regardless of whether they thought it was realistically contributing or not, because... Um, yeah, they just they just needed to uh, make it as as safe as possible for Sunday. So now they've got this big investigation that's ongoing, which no doubt will include all sorts of things like flammability tests on these guards, which are a different material to what was on the mm -hmm. Gen Two cars, and and all of the things around that. Yeah, like when you talk about the collaborative approach, we pretty much saw someone from every team come through that Tickford garage and have a look at that car and have some input into what was going on. Uh, on uh, on that Saturday evening, which can be helpful and maybe you know added to <laughs> just how many theories there were going. I guess the what's difficult when you've got fire involved is that like it just makes such a mess of everything. It does make it that little bit harder to to sort of go through the forensic process and work out exactly what has gone wrong. And like you know, like you said, the the, the mitigation plan with all these points with the ten points or whatever it was to check off. Like obviously, it had to be that way for safety. You can't be sticking. Um, drivers into cars that might that are, are at a greater risk than normal of catching on fire. Um, and you know, when you mentioned WAU before, I'm, I think that was basically put to the drivers like, do you really actually want to do this? Um, but when you have this like sweeping changes through a mitigation plan like that, it also makes it a bit tougher to diagnose because you've basically like it makes it more difficult to work out exactly what worked. 
Um, but yeah, look, it, it has to be solved before Perth because we can't have races starting behind the safety car, that sort of stuff. We need to be able to race these cars in the manner that's traditional for supercars, right? Yeah, totally. And I think they're pretty confident that uh, they'll get to the bottom of it. But uh, certainly, I mean, just talking about the amount of things that they they changed, um, one of them was actually visible to people on the outside even. Um, you may have seen that the cars were running with the bonnets taped down at Albert Park because in the James Courtney shunt in Newcastle, the bonnet pin retainers actually punched through the bonnet. So there was a bit of concern pre-event that nose-to-tail contact could result in a bonnet flying up. But then on Sunday, that tape was even removed. They just tried to revert anything back to the previous spec, as unlikely as it was as a contributing factor. They, uh, They just wanted to change everything back. The other big talking point of the weekend was parody, a debate that roared back into life and with decent reason. To be honest, we all knew that Albert Park might expose some issues that were kept hidden in Newcastle. We definitely saw that to be the case. The four drivers were left scratching their collective heads over how good the Camaro seemed to be from around fourth gear onwards. Um, and that is with a significantly longer shift cut delta as well. Um, there were no Fords on the podium in terms of final results or weekend. James Courtney uh, was on the podium on Friday, but lost that result due to a driving infringement. Will Davison was on the podium on Saturday, but lost that for an unsafe release. But Sunday's race, which was probably the most straightforward in terms of the conditions, saw Camaro's lock out the top five. It would have been the top six if Bryce Fullwood hadn't copped his penalty in that race. Stefan, we often talk about the smoking gun back in 2019, not being how dominant Scott McLaughlin was in the brand new Mustang, but the rapid improvement we saw from Tickford year on year after they struggled so much in 2018. Now, Bryce is a fine driver. BJR has clearly built some fast Gen 3 cars, but there is a little bit of a similar feel about some of the things we saw on the weekend, and I think Ford does have some ammo up its sleeve right now. Am I being too harsh there? It does sound harsh, but I'm sure Ford are using every <laughs> bit of ammo it can find. And yeah, Bryce performing better in the, in the Chev than he did in the Holden wouldn't be lost on them. But it is still very early in the season, and there was just so many variables at Albert Park that could be contributing to, to the results. And, you know, they did that re-evaluation of the acceleration data under controlled conditions at Tamora only a month ago. So it would certainly be brave to be reacting immediately after what we saw on the weekend. And I'm sure from the other side of it, they would be pointing out the fact that the weekend did start with Anton Di Pasquale on pole position. Yeah. You know, the Ford homologation team has been all over the place. Um, in these first two rounds, and and Walkinshaws, to their credit, I mean, they were the second best Holden team before, and they've come in and had the highest point scoring Ford driver at both of these first two events. So, you know, you sort of look at that and say, hey, if if Triple Eight were running Mustangs, would we have a parity problem? Yeah, it's an interesting point. It's an interesting point. I think there there does seem to be a theory that you know qualifying. Um, you know, the way you're driving the car and qualifying maybe masks the issue a little bit. It's actually the raceability that's the issue when you're actually trying to pass somebody and they've just got that little bit more at the top end, um, not of the rev range, but of the actual engine speed um, and power range. Um, there was some new mapping, I believe, that Ford has been working on um, that, you know, they would like to get in those cars, but Supercars is yet to approve that. But yeah, like I said, we go to Wanneroo next, which is a fairly high-speed circuit, but different acceleration demands and all that sort of stuff. So it would be, yeah, 
And then we go to Tasmania, where which is totally different again. So yeah, it's interesting too. You say that Ford have uh, got the solution already prepared there. That does feel like a bit of 2019 again, doesn't it? Where uh, yes, they knew yep. there'd be changes made, so they had option B and C. That was obviously working in the other direction. But uh, yeah, they're always a step ahead. One of the Fords we did see finish on the podium on the road, at least over the weekend, was James Cording on Friday, um, but he didn't hold on to it for long. Um, in the press conference, it was put to him by your colleague, Connor O'Brien, <laughs> that uh, perhaps he'd gotten the back of Cam Waters <laughs> on the run to turn one. He did his best to deflect it and said, mate, it's uh, it's called racing, not following. But uh, I think having a, it, didn't take, it didn't take that much uh, – you didn't have to review the footies that many times to realise that he was probably going to get in a fair bit of strife for that. He did absolutely clout into the back of Cam Waters, who then got in the back of David Reynolds and left him beached at turn one. I did hear that uh, one of James's arguments for the contact when he faced the stewards later was that the faulty lights and that Australian flag start meant that everyone was out of position and he had no idea what was going on, which um, I don't think the stewards bought into that one too much. Was it a fair call to strip him of that result based on the contact, Stephen? Well, yes, certainly based on the evidence that we saw. And it did make me wonder whether uh, James's explanation to Cam was the same as his explanation to the media yep. that uh, it's called racing when you uh, <laughs> fire into the back of your teammate in a straight line heading into turn one. Um, I guess, uh, you know, you've got to, uh, for anyone to believe it, you've got to believe it first. But uh, th- that, that aside, like not having working starting lights was pretty embarrassing to yeah, that race. totally. Apparently, yep. when the supercars guys got up into the starters box, the actual electronic control box for the lights was locked. Like after the F3 session that had been on beforehand, someone had like literally walked off with a key. That's amazing. That is amazing. Yeah, no, that was quite an incredible thing to um, incredible thing to see. Uh, speaking of incredible claims, there was some tasty WAU versus Triple Eight action on that Saturday as well. Uh, when there was an accusation from Ryan Walkinshaw that Brock Feeney had slowed up too much racing to the safety car line and it cost himself a win and Chaz Mostert behind him a podium. Now, the scenario was that Feeney had just pitted, Mostert had pitted a lap earlier and Brody Kostecki, James Courtney and Shane Van Gisbergen were all able to pit as the safety car came out and resume as the top three. So the inference from Ryan was that Brock had deliberately Driven too slow to allow Shane to retain that third place. He referenced DJR in the infamous 2019 Bathurst 1000. Triple Eight, of course, refuted the claims on the basis that costing one of your drivers a win so that another could finish third doesn't make all that much sense. I have to say I struggle to see how it makes all that much sense uh, as well. So I don't really think for a second there was any sort of formal plan in place to do that. What it seems like is Brock slowed when he went past Jack LeBrock's crash car. And really, Steph, and what this shines a light on is that we need to eliminate this ridiculously dangerous racing to the safety car line practice. Yeah, the fact that the scandal here was because a driver may have slowed down while yeah, passing for a, crash. a crash car just it's shows crazy. how insane the, the current safety car rules are that the teams then yeah. have to play to. And, yeah, we've talked about this before, but we do need to keep talking about it because everyone in the sport knows how dangerous it is, but nothing ever gets done about it. And the most frustrating thing is the solutions are out there. Like other categories have it to either yep. slow the entire field immediately or just through the crash zone. They can police it using delta times through micro sectors or with the GPS positioning technology that they've already got. It's all doable. And yet here we have Jack LeBrock unable to get out of his crashed car because there's cars blazing past at 
200 kilometers an hour. Like he's in there hoping no one hits him and then his car isn't about to catch fire. It's just, it's a disaster waiting to happen and they need to act on it. Yeah, we saw quite a bit of like gnarliness in and around pit lane when we had these sort of rushes in to get stops done and that sort of stuff as well. Like it was, there was a fair bit to take note of over the weekend. Yeah, some of the pit lane stuff was just totally out of control with cars making contact right next to crew members and and wheels flying towards marshals who are looking the other way. Like there'll always be some danger in pit lane, but for me there's a few things like the two rattle gun rule where you then have mechanics running from one end of the car to the other. That doesn't work in a tight pit lane like Albert Park. Like The other drivers are having to dodge moving targets. There's people running everywhere and the drivers are just hoping a mechanic doesn't appear in their path as they're turning in or out of the box. So even even the fact you have car controllers in pit lane not wearing race suits because it's it's not mandatory because it's not actually a refueling race, but then you've got cars coming in literally on fire. Yeah, on fire, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. There's, there's just a few things there that you look at and go, well, I think they need to have a look at it and, and maybe tighten up these, these things. Yep, absolutely. Speaking of rules, there were some interesting quirks with this wet declaration thing over the weekend uh, as well. It was interesting to see that on Thursday some teams are onto it and others weren't, but it really does feel like it just had too much of an impact. Yeah, this was, of course, a situation where if the race was declared wet, you didn't have to run both compounds, and that meant you could get away with changing just two tyres. So as you say, good on the teams that were on top of it, which were most clearly Triple Eight, Erebus and Brad Jones Racing. It was a shame that it meant most started the next two races on the Super Soft to avoid getting boxed in. But it was certainly, it was a fun quirk to that Thursday race, I thought. And, you know, those AGP tyre rules, they did throw up a couple of other curiosities through the weekend as well that resulted in in clarifications being sent out by supercars. There there was an issue with rules definitively stating one qualifying session was hard tyres only and one was super softs only. And they, they dropped out having a provision in there for actually running wets. So thankfully, a team pointed out that loophole before Saturday's wet session because if they wanted to, they could have just tootled around on some hards and then later got the other 23 cars DSQ'd. So without naming the team, let's say it would have been an amazing return of serve after what happened in Newcastle. (laughs) That would have been been pretty amazing. Um, Amid all the drama, it was an excellent weekend for Erebus Motorsport at Albert Park. Uh, as I mentioned before, Brody Kostecki took home the Larry Perkins Trophy and the series lead. It's obviously a very small sample size, you know, if we look at what we've seen this season so far. I guess we've still got a lot to learn in Perth and then when we get to Triple Eight country um, in Tasmania. But there's some good signs of genuine pace from that team. You picked it pre-season, Stefan. Um, could Erebus and Brody actually be the real deal this year? Like, is this where the challenge to Shane could actually come from? They're certainly looking very good at the moment and, you know, full credit to them, especially when you consider where that team was, say, in mid-2020. Like, since then, they they invested in two young drivers, which is always a risk. They brought in new staff and then when it came to Gen 3, they backed themselves to build their own chassis. So, we we can see on the track that the drivers work well together and and Brody, as you say, he is absolutely excelling in these cars. So, in terms of taking it to Triple Eight over the season, though, the only question is whether they can actually execute 
every yep. weekend. In Newcastle on Sunday, Brody qualified 15th because of a technical issue they had going on and, you know, that sort of stuff can hurt quite badly. So that's the challenge for them, not letting any of the process or procedural things get in the way of, of their obvious car speed. Before we move on from supercars at Albert Park, Stefan, the rumour mill was in full swing over the future of the series. At that event, uh, there was a level of disgruntledness from the teams due to the revised layout of the paddock due to F2 and F3 being there. That meant that the supercars' trucks were outside the circuit basically on the village green area rather than being directly behind the pits as per usual. Um, so team personnel were logging a few more Ks on their feet than normal. Um, there was also a lot of talk about F2 and F3 moving into the pit lane area that supercars uses next year and forcing supercars out. We know there is fresh investment coming to Albert Park thanks to this long-term agreement with Formula One. Uh, and part of the chat is that a facility could be built on the other side of the main straight uh, for supercars. Um, either way, with how time certain everything ran on the weekend, again, you know, F2 and F3 being there contributing to that, there were plenty of people in the supercars paddock that felt the series was nothing more than a support category a long way down the pecking order and that maybe supercars Shouldn't be there. And then there are others pointing out that, you know, with the with the current F1 boom, you know, Supercars absolutely has to capitalise on that and race at Albert Park. The current agreement between Supercars and the AGPC is now up, although there is a two-year option on the table. I guess the real negotiations won't start until Andrew Westercott's replacement has been appointed at the AGPC. Stefan, what could you see happening from here? It's certainly an interesting equation and it does seem like the Grand Prix is in a position now where it doesn't really need supercars. It's yep. all about F1, F2 and F3. But I think conversely, supercars needs the Grand Prix. It's just too big a show totally. not to be a part of, both commercially and from a fan exposure point of view. So supercars losing their own pit lane might seem like a big blow, but I don't think it's a knockout punch for them. I think from what we saw on the weekend, the Gen 3 cars could still put on a pretty good show without pit stops, just yep. doing sprint races. And then one of the issues this year was that with the huge F2 and F3 marquees set up where the supercars trucks used to be, fans couldn't even find the supercars paddock. It was really hard yeah, to, was hard to, hard get to through there. find and then hard to access as well because when F2 and F3 were going in and out, they would shut that area off and, and you couldn't get through. So I think if supercars ended up in the middle of the circuit where the Porsches are, it would actually give them a lot more exposure, a lot more foot traffic. So being, yep. being out on the grass doesn't sound as good as having a pit lane, but if they really created some sort of supercars like um, – yeah, exhibition area through there, it could it could actually work for them. Absolutely. Uh, let's move on to Formula One now, Stefan. And it sure was a fascinating Australian Grand Prix at times for the racing and at times for the officiating. What did you make of the three red flags and how the race ultimately and very slowly did come to its conclusion? It was obviously a bit messy and especially – at the end there, I think it was particularly bad for fans trackside because I believe the big screen commentators were pumping it up that there'd actually be another racing lap. So there were a few boos when when that didn't end up happening. Right. But, but race control, in the end there, they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't sometimes with these red flags near the end of races. Like some people pointed to it that it probably could have been the answer for that Abu Dhabi situation in 2021 instead of rushing through a safety car to throw a red and that's kind of what they ended up doing here. But, yeah, it, it didn't work out for them. 
Yeah, no, for sure. And I think there certainly needs to be, you know, there's been some comments from team bosses saying that there needs to be clearer understanding for teams what and when the red flag will be used. I think it it can definitely work. Those standing starts are way better than just trundling around behind the safety car. Um, But obviously teams, particularly with the way that the the rules are set up, we've been able to change those tyres, teams need to know what they're dealing with. And that's something they need to look at. If you're going to use it, but it's going to give – it's going to put some drivers at a huge advantage or others at a huge disadvantage. Obviously, then, you know, the system starts to fall over as well. So I think if they can clarify and say, and it might be, okay, well, it's going to be inside the last 10 laps. This is how we're going to do this. Then everyone knows sort of what they're working with and it could potentially work. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Uh, points for Oscar Piastri was a great outcome as well. Uh, I was actually in the McLaren hospita- uh, hospitality unit for a press round table with Andrea Stella when Oscar and Mark Webber walked back in from the garage after the race and the fanfare was really cool to see there. Um, Andrea did warn that, you know, there were lots of circumstances that helped Lando and Oscar end up in the points and that raw pace is still a bit of a worry at the moment, but the team is certainly impressed with Oscar and how quickly he is adapting to, to Formula One and and now he's certainly within the same postcode as Lando, which is uh, pretty promising this early in his career. All right, let's take a look at what is happening around the world or in the first instance in our backyard. Uh, Dennis Hauger won the FIA F2 sprint race at Albert Park before Ayumu Iwasa took out the feature race win. In FIA F3, the sprint race went to Franco Colapinto and the feature race to Gabriel Bortoletto. In MotoGP, KTM's Brad Binder won the sprint race in Argentina from 15th on the grid before Marco Betsecchi took a first career win in the Grand Prix itself. Jack Miller finished 6th. Joseph Newgarden won an exciting IndyCar race in Texas ahead of Pato O'Ward and Alex Palo. Scotty Mack finished 6th and Will Power down in 16th. And Kyle Larson took out the NASCAR Cup Series race at Richmond Raceway. Okay, Castrol mailbag time. Mick Jordan asks, should supercars be looking at shorter race formats more often? Most action-packed race weekend in a long time at Albert Park, in my opinion. Two tight compounds, narrow CPS windows, and a bit of boys have added. I kind of think that we already have a fairly good mix of formats, and I don't actually mind the format at the Grand Prix. I agree with what you said before, Stefan. You could probably get rid of the stops, and you could just have pure sprint racing, and it's the sort of track that would work for it. Obviously, if like supercars is the main show, you've got to be mindful of the amount of track time that they have. So it's not necessarily easy to just do, you know, like a 90K sprint race with no stops and do that twice and go, well, there you go. There's your race weekend because you're charging people to come through the gate and they need to see some race cars on track. But at the Grand Prix, it obviously works because it is just one of a number of categories, you know, that are all competing for billing as opposed to, you know, a supercars event where you have supercars and then the rest and, you know, people aren't actually coming to watch the rest. They're coming to watch supercars. So you've always got to be mindful of that. But I agree that the format can work in the right circumstances. And certainly these cars look a bit racier. We actually saw that this time. Yeah, I think one of the things is that um, I'm personally not a huge fan of the mixed compound, but it is a bit surprising that it only gets used at Albert Park considering how widely used it is in other categories. And I think I'd be more of a fan of it if the two compounds were a little closer Mm -hmm. um, because you don't really see cars racing each other when they're on the two different specs. It's It's a big difference. But, um, yeah, we've, we've seen more mixed compounds in the past and, um, yeah, maybe it's something they'll look at doing more of in the future. All righty, let's hand out some Castrol Stars of the Week. Stefan, you can go first this week. Who have you got? 
I'm going for a real unsung hero this time, Andrew. Mm-hmm. I'm giving my Castrol Star of the Week to Supercar's safety car driver, Jason right. Ratley. Wow. Well, it's a bit of a thankless job, but he led the field over the finish line in that Friday race and then led them off the start on Sunday. So basically the safety car driver's taken a pole position and a victory on the that one weekend. Cool. That's amazing. That's that's just fair reward for all of the uh, VCAT work that he did during the year driving those cars, which is um, cool. which is quite, quite a funny thing as well. Uh, I'm going to play it straight this week and give mine to Oscar Piastri. First points of his F1 career on home soil as the first Melbourne driver to take part in a World Championship Australian GP at Albert Park. Not quite Mark Webber, 2002 areas, but a romantic result all the same. Well, that's it for this week. Remember to like, subscribe and review our work wherever you listen to your podcast and we'll be back next week with more Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.